Our industry took a sucker punch to the gut in 20. Uh, OPEC price war, COVID demand destruction, stock market exodus left many producers on life support and with heavy debt loads and restricted access to capital. Private equity, quite frankly, didn't do much better uh, than the producers. And well, 2021 bring us any reprieve? Will private equity continue to support management teams in their projects? In the first business session, our panelists will provide unique perspectives from the producer and private equity to navigate the ups and downs in 2021. Our moderator is Buddy Clark, co-chair of the Energy Group for Haynes and Boone. Panelists are Gregory M. Robbins, President, Griddle and Gas, Michael A. Freeman, partner, Haynes and Boone, LLP, and Chuck Yates, advisory board, Cottonwood Venture Partners. Welcome, gentlemen, and uh, thanks for being here. I would make one note, if you would, after, if there's time allowed and you would like to ask a question for those that are present, feel free to step up to the mic. Thank you. I feel like I'm on the front row of class. At least you got your mic to work. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. We are uh, excited to be here, at least to have another, to try to, try to restart the normal routines that we've had for so many years in the industry. I was talking to one of the organizers of NAEP and can remember going back to uh, the hotel or in the Galleria where NAEP was held in a small sort of uh, ballroom area. And now it's, it has certainly expanded over the years. Let's hope that we're beginning to restart the engine and this time in, in winter, NAEP will be back in full force. But for now, we're going to try to kick off the presentations this morning, and uh, fortunately, we have a very good panel today. Um, we actually were supposed to speak last winter, but as everyone knows, NAEP was, was postponed. But in preparation for last winter's NAEP, I had asked all the panelists what they thought the price of oil would be on, say, August 15th of 2021, and to a man, they said $67.16. So I think we have a pretty sharp panel here. Uh, and maybe we'll ask them at the end of the presentation what the price will be for winter Nate. So let me get started with uh, just a brief introduction of our panel. Um, to my far left is Greg Robbins, president of Grit Energy. Um, Greg started out as a, a banker and then in private equity with a private equity shop and worked at Memorial uh, Production Partners for a while. And he formed Grit Energy with Larry Forney, a few other people with some financing from Carnelian, he'll tell us more about that detail. They've already had one level of success, that was their first uh, company, Grit Energy One, um, and now they're on their second Grit Energy uh, in incarnation, although, Greg, I, you didn't ask me about the naming of it, Grit Oil and Gas Two was a huge mistake. Should have been Two Grit Oil and Gas Energy. Get it? Two Grit. See, if the crowd was bigger, that would just be uproar. You know, we probably wouldn't be able to finish the program. Anyway, um, Greg has uh, really been a leader in his company and will give us some really good insight. For those in the audience that are looking to find 
a way to get into this space and, and access private equity, and that'll be the theme of our presentation. Mike Freeman is a partner of mine in Haynes and Boone in our Dallas office, has worked for a number of years with various private equity shops as well as their portfolio companies. So Mike has been uh, both on both sides of those negotiations. He's seen how the sausage is made and will be able to help kind of intermediate between the discussions of our panelists because our third panelist, Chuck Yates, uh, has worked for a long time in the private e equity space, uh, graduate of Rice University, and had worked at Kane Anderson for a number of years. And now will, uh, I think his title now is Viceroy of the Galaxy? Galactic Viceroy. Galactic Viceroy. So he's, he's kind of moved up in his career. Okay, I kid you not. I went in on LinkedIn and they make you put a title. So I was like, unemployed dude doesn't sound very good. So I put in Galactic Viceroy. I kid you not, somebody sends me a message saying, congratulations on the new job. So I messaged back. Well, thank you very much. I'm just pursuing my dreams. And the person came back and said, I know you'll crush it. And it's worked out well for Chuck because his, his wardrobe has really improved over the years, I'll say. Someone, someone actually tweeted out about, you know, two weeks after I got fired uh, last year, something to the effect of, they always say dress for the job you want. Chuck took that shit real seriously. So. <laughs> All right, let's get, let's get into it. As I said earlier, the theme of this presentation, what we think the audience is, is here to find out is um, how, do we, how, does, how does one, with a great prospect, go about finding enough capital to be able to acquire the prospect and develop it? And I thought we could start off with Greg because he's had that exercise, actually on both sides, he's seen pitches from uh, management teams looking for financing, but he's also honed his skills and has been able to uh, really establish a good relationship with his private equity provider. So, Greg, maybe just a, a background on how you kind of got into the, this business and then your most recent um, incarnation of 2GRIT. Yep. Um, good morning. So, I kind of started in early 2011. We, uh, I was lucky enough to be a part of the, the NGP creation of what turned into MRD Opco Memorial. But um, that was a deal that was a consolidation of um, some portfolio companies. And what's different between then and I'd say now for us is that we were handed assets. Uh, they were they had a number of portfolio companies they were trying to you know consolidate into for various reasons. So, you know, I think one guy they were moving out of the business. A couple others they want they wanted that person to spend time on other assets. But regardless. We were kind of handed the keys, and um, we never had to really um, extend ourselves. I mean, it was an we didn't know if it was going to take. We had to take it public. I mean, we I, I I truly believe we took some personal risk, but finding that asset and um, um, and kind of raising the money for it was really not our initial business model. And so, it was, which was a great way to start, because um, that is a very hard part of this deal. And, and all we had to do all we had to do was execute. And that was really where our business model was formed, was um, we never had to hone our skills in finding an asset, but we had to deliver. And we had to follow teams that were operating these assets under the private equity model. They were already nimble, they were already lean, they were already assumingly doing what they were supposed to do. And we had to come in there and suddenly do it better. 
And so our team quickly became petrotechnically weak and operationally um, intense, lots of engineers, and it was an execution model. So fast forward till 2016, late 2016, we sold the balance, we kind of spun out the, the, the upstream MLP, we sold MRD to range, and, um, and there was, you know, it's kind of a weird mix of, of kind of who was left standing, but there was, you know, arguably four to five kind of founders of that group, and we all decided to go different ways. I had had four kids born in those, that time period, and it had been just a whirlwind, and I wanted to take a few months off, and then the balance of the team kind of just went right back into it. So Larry and I started, you know, GRIT um, in uh, what turned out to be kind of January of 2017. We took a few months off, like I said, and and that was really the beginning of the asset search. And I think we learned really quickly that when we started, there was a small group of us, and it was, you know, ultimately ended up being six people. And you know, at any given time, four of those people were engineers. They could execute on projects, but they weren't looking for assets, and they weren't underwriting deals, and they weren't doing models and and, and various kind of reservoir, you know, research. Um, but it, it all worked out. We were able to find an asset, buy it, sell it, make a little bit of money. You know that was fund one for Carnelian. And for those of you who don't know, if if you don't do like a three or four x in fund one and Carnelian, you're you're a failure. So um, we were not one of those companies. They had a number of portfolio companies that did extremely well. But uh, we were able to buy it, sell it, execute. I think we took a good price risk. But I'm trying to just get to grit two which I think is really the most important part of um, this presentation. So we sold that asset in June of 2019, and we just bought something in July. We closed on it July 22nd of this year. And so we had two years without an asset. And, um, and it was brutal. Um, it was the best being un, you know, unemployed through COVID, as Chuck can probably appreciate some. <laughs> I mean, you just couldn't get a lot done, and you feel like you're looking at all your buddies spinning their wheels on stuff that doesn't matter. And so having those few months was nice, at least for me. But the, the, before that and after that just made deals hard. So I think the, the, the summary of our beginnings was trying to find a deal in those two years, trying to work with our private equity to keep our equity commitment, which we, we did, or they were gracious enough to allow us to do. And, um, and all that can go, I can go on and on, but I don't know what particular topic you want to cover, but I will say that if you break up the last two years, you had pre-COVID, you had um, through COVID, and then you kind of had this post-COVID fallout where deals were supposedly plentiful, and, um, but, mar but money wasn't available. And uh, we made it through, and we have an asset now, and um, good to be where we are. And, the, um, and I think we really need to talk about what the future holds, but but going back to how did you find, how did you marry up with Carnelian? Did you talk to a lot of different private equity shops? And, and what's that drill from the producer's side? How do you see yourself going out to access private equity capital? Well, uh, Carnelian was a spin out of NGP. So, uh, you know, we had, uh, when we started Memorial, we actually officed in NGP's office. There's only a few of us. And so I got to meet Thomas Ackerman during that time. And so when, when we sold, Memorial, Thomas and, and Daniel had already formed Carnelian. And so we didn't call anyone. We just called Carnelian. And so again, Mike, my first, our first deal, we were handed assets and our, our first grit commitment, we were just handed a deal from Thomas. But that's how 
the world turned at that time. If you had success on a deal, which you know meant you made money, not necessarily operationally successful, but you made money, you got another equity commitment. That's just what it was. I don't. And Chuck, can pro I mean, that's what Chuck did from that side. But I kind of feel like if you made money, you got a commitment. And the level of work at that time and how they measured success was was more about your 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 financial track record than your structural track record from an, like executing projects. What did you actually do, um, and how did you perform? That's a part of it, but um, I think people they think winners are going to be winners, you know, and losers are going to be losers. But I'll, yeah, no, it was the worst predictor of future performance was whether you made money or not. Because I can't tell you the number of times we made money despite ourselves. And then there were times we actually did everything right and we lost a fortune. I mean, it really, looking back at it with some hindsight now, it's amazing. And, and I think one of the things, back to your point where you were uh, in that day and age, remember, you know, what is it? Charlie Munger says, show me your incentives and I'll show you your actions. Back then, energy was a set allocation in all the investors' portfolios, so 10%, 12%. And so they needed money out the door. If you're a large endowment, you ran the scenario where oil went to $25 a barrel. You decided you wanted 10% exposed to energy. So the private equity firms getting all the grief about doing all these bad deals actually did their jobs pretty well in terms of taking the money and getting it exposed to energy for their clients. But yeah, back, back in the day, we had every incentive to keep management teams around, keep them loaded up with commitments, and go find those assets because our clients want money in the ground in oil and natural gas for their exposure. Oh. You both are talking about existing management teams and, and you know, renewing it, rinse, repeat. Uh, but how does a, a young team of uh, a geologist and an engineer, they know this great asset somewhere in East Texas that from the prior company they'd worked for, maybe they've been laid off or whatever, but the company's not exploiting that asset. They think they can get a lease on it, but they've got to have cash to do it. What do they need to show? to the private equity guys that will convince, that get them in the door, one, and then two, close the deal with them. Yeah, and, and the world's changed, obviously, pre-COVID versus post-COVID. You know, pre-COVID, you had a fancy PowerPoint with some pictures and you could get yourself a meeting and do that. Um, and, you know, you two guys compare and or critique me on this because I'm sitting on the sidelines watching it, but today, I mean, you need to walk in with a team that's actually worked together before. I mean, that's a big risk to an investor. These three guys have never worked together and they're gonna, you're gonna give them $100 million. What happens if they break up? So you want a team that's worked together. You have to show that you've made money. Um, just walking in and saying, hey, I got this great idea, I know this asset doesn't help. You need to show that you've made money before. And then I think today's age, there are no more equity line of commitments where, hey, we'll pay your G&A, go find an asset. You've got to have the asset on lockdown. And, you know, to your point, if it's leasing, that's actually really tough because I'm not sure folks are drilling these days or looking at kind of drill first type, type models. 
but if it's an acquisition, maybe you've got to have a letter of intent in place or something. And I get that it's a chicken and an egg problem, but you really have to have it on lockdown so that the private equity firm can scrub down everything about getting into business with you. Here's the team. We've been together. We've made money. Here's the asset. Here's the exploitation plan. You almost have to have it totally buttoned up today to be able to get money because money is really scarce. Yeah, no, I, I would I would agree with all that. I think things have changed. They were they were changing before COVID. We were in a sort of a cycle that was was not trending trending in a good direction, but COVID clearly made things worse. Um, and and private equity sponsors now, from what from what I've seen and from talking to private equity sponsors, you have to have all the things that you've said in in and have a deal basically in place. And how do you how do you actually articulate that to to a sponsor in order to to get the commitment. I have seen in some circumstances, some, some are sponsors are more willing to do this than others. Some sponsors are willing to sort of uh, engage in some sort of consulting arrangement, almost a rent before you buy. And that's, I don't think all sponsors are doing that, but, but certainly some. It's sort of an additional step to allow them to, to, to establish that relationship before they actually make their commitment. Yeah, and, and I think, are there doing, um, you know, even if it's not a consulting, but it's like, hey, for the next, Three months, six months, we're going to date, and have some exclusivity, you know, associated with the, with the deals you bring. But, um, yeah, you know, uh, I on on our side of the, what what we experienced was, it's really hard to get traction with sellers, if you don't have money and you're trying to get that LOI, and it's just not real. And you know, uh, the banks, you know, a lot of this the way we see it is if the banks are hungry for M and A which they were this last year, the banks are also calling on these same sellers and they're trying to lock down those deals and they're going to a process. And how do you go into a process with a bid, uh, you know, with no money and, and be competitive? I, I just, I, that we struggled, we did that, but we had, we had money and we felt like we lost uh, the vast majority of our processes to folks that did not have money. And that seller, and I, I've been in those shoes, but it's like milking that last inc incremental dollar for for um, a deal that has su substantial risk. It just isn't worth it. But at the end of the day, someone's whatever 10% higher, you feel that obligation to pursue it at least, and then that's when oh, I think a lot of deals fell apart. But we felt like if you kind of went through the, the deals that we actually pursued that were in a process, we felt over half, if not two-thirds of them, were all top two or three bids were people without money. And so then you, you play that scenario out and you're like, okay, I just won this bid and how long do you have to go find your money? A week? Yeah. And so it's just, it's just, it creates a dynamic that is just, just frustrating for people that, that do have money, that did have money, losing deals that then they, you know, that deals kind of auger in and, um, and then it just makes it very difficult for people without money. So I just, my advice on that is stay away from the deals that set you up for that. And we, we, had, a pre, we had a presentation to Cardinalian that, you know, we're big baseball guys, but we had the, the full hit them where they ain't, you know, strategy because we just didn't want to be in that situation. And so we, we, kept, we looked at deals that would not go to a bank. It was too small, too risky, too whatever, just a failed deal. It was not going to go to a bank. You could find sellers that were willing to work with you and, and create that structure. 
and you just remove a part of the process, you remove yourself from a part of the process that you just don't want to participate in. And it seems um, so simple, but I can't tell you how many times I saw people routinely re-enter the same uh, bank processes during this kind of post-COVID period, knowing they were going to fight those fights and probably come out on the other end, you know, not successful. And it's just a, you know, you I just get, burn your time up just like that. I get DM through Twitter, LinkedIn, and the like, and basically get some variation of the question of how do you make money today. And um, my answer has been, if you expect the world to revert to the mean, get out. I mean, it's not going back to the mean. You're not getting a $500 million commitment from NCAP to go do this. It's just not happening again. And the thing I've always said is you've got to, to your point, go hustle down deals that no one else is talking to and or you've got to develop a unique skill set where you can really walk into Thomas Ackerman and say, hey, we do this better than anyone in the world. This is the reason that we can be the high bidder on this asset and we can still make you money. Because I think if you walk in with a marketed deal from Jeffries and you've never worked the area before, you're not going to get any traction with a private equity person. You've got to give them something that truly is a differentiator. Yeah. And and so anyway, we we uh, another thing that we did during the during this two year break um, was uh, you kind of create this. You have a relationship with your private equity guy, and you know at some point they ask you to do things that you're uncomfortable doing, and how much do you stay? Oh, please go on. So, um, <laughs> and so, how, how much do you stay true to kind of what you're you know, you're taking entrepreneurial people and putting them with entrepreneurial people or Type A people and Type A people and like you know who's going to win that battle? And and the answer is always private equity, you know. And everybody has a boss and everybody needs a partner. And I think we came at it with a mindset of you know if we dig in, you know. Um, you know, what are we really asking them to do? You know, and, and you know, and and I think that it was a give and take relationship. But they asked us to do some things that we were really uncomfortable doing, which is we like to work a few deals at a time and put a ton of time into them. That just didn't work then. And so what they asked us to do it ended up being one of the best things we ever did. We ended up hiring a data scientist who married all of our. We spent about four times more than we've ever had before on data from all the data providers. And then we hired this guy to marry it all together. And we just, for the purpose of, we looked at a deal every week and put a bid in on that deal every week. And we said, we started on, we started the uh, two weeks after COVID, two weeks after spring break when they shut school in. And we did that every week going forward. And it seemed for, for us at the time, it, it was like, man, this is such, so shallow. Like it's just the opposite of what you feel like you need to do but it was just practice, and it was it was a by the time cast a really wide net. And it's that's what they wanted. They wanted a real wide net. They wanted a lot of shots on goals. All the all the little um, expressions that you can kind of you know capture that. But um, what that did is it refined our ability to um, review and assess deals quickly, and uh, and cast that wide net. And I, we would have never done it. And and so glad we did and it what it changed us it converted us to for those of you who do not pursue you know a material IT related integration data kind of data backed organization 
you got to get there or you're out. And that's in private equity these days. We were doing things, and we'd tell them about it, and they're like, oh, yeah, we know some people have been doing that for months. You know, we were behind on integrating and utilizing data efficiently. And now we're, you know, I think we're as ahead as anybody else is. And, and so visiting with private equity groups constantly, and if you can't get a meeting with the top dog, take a meeting with the next guy or the next lady or whatever it takes to just get feedback from these private equity guys. I do know people that call you know, six different private equity guys every other week. He's in their office hounding them, telling them what they do, and I think that does pay off. And um, it's, just, it's just that that, that tenacity is what they want to see. They don't need to see an alpha guy come in there with you know, the best proposal ever, and he's got a, you know, a big organization with a big G&A budget. You know, they want to see someone that's just you know, nipping the ankles of every deal they can and trying to find someone who's hungry for assets. That's been my experience with what the private, private equity folks are looking for right now. So, Mike, let me ask you, once the team has found a private equity sponsor, somebody's going to cut a deal. And uh, is it just a preset formula on how the money will be allocated, the waterfall, or is that a negotiated part? Is it, it kind of depends on where you are in, the, in your negotiating power. Yeah, I think it's where you are in your negotiating power. You, you typically aren't going to have a lot of negotiating power. I think, I think in 2021 you have probably less than you did less than you've ever had. Um, but there, there are a number of things that are negotiable, but for the most part, those with the money make, make the rules, so there's not, not a whole lot. Uh, in terms of, they, they typically have, you know, each sponsor might be a little bit different, but they typically have a, a standard waterfall that they like to operate under and provide a, a back end, uh, typically a profits interest of some sort, to the management team. Um, but, but I think, you know, and I've had discussions with people lately because a lot of those traditional back ends were, were really predicated on a, 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 the investment turning over within two to three years, which was, which was obviously the model. Um, and, and for management teams to be incentivized and to actually make a, make a return, which is what gets people up in the morning, that is a harder thing to do. So I think they're, they're rethinking that. I think we're, we're sort of in an unknown, I think, for, for management teams going forward. What, 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 the, what the waterfall is going to look like is a little bit unknown because pretty clearly private equity now is looking at, at a longer-term play. They're looking at, at, at uh, you know, prospects and, and looking at turning prospects into production as opposed to just buying, you know, overpaying and buying pure production. So. I mean, I just think you sign whatever they put in front of you. And I hate to be flippant. As quickly as possible. As quickly as possible before they change their mind. I, you know, I've gotten – I got a message one time – through Twitter, and I was talking to the to the person, and it's you know, well, we want to negotiate this, and I'm like, you're an idiot. You have no asset. Someone is offering to give you the money to get the asset. Three years from now, if you make money on it, you're not going to care whether you have the extra five percent or not. If you blow this deal right now, I guarantee your answer is going to be zero in three years. So, I mean, particularly when you're young and have nothing, just sign whatever they put in front of you. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't, you know, we're not the, you know, these portcos are not the victim. I, I'm sympathetic to the private equity folks. I mean, they're, it's hard to raise money, and their job is going to be very different going forward, and the LP shrinkage is, is real. So, I mean, they're, they're taking these huge risks. I think what the risk that they're taking is equal to or greater than what the teams are taking to right now, and you get that document, you sign it. And... Um, 
I don't think we negotiated anything. We changed the address, changed our names, signed the document. And, you know. Um, so you mentioned it's hard to get to access capital. On the private equity side, it seems they've uh, refocused their attention away from energy and certainly upstream oil and gas deals to other areas. Uh, how much, call it dry powder, is out there available for private equity to spend in EMP and U.S.? Anybody have a handle on that? The, whatever number you throw out, I'm going to say half of what, whatever is said. Because, I mean, just a little bit of history on this that I think a lot of people know, but, you know, go back to kind of the late 90s when Ken Hirsch is out raising a, you know, NGP1 or NGP2 or NGP3 and early days. He used to have to walk into the private capital bucket of an institution and explain this is what energy is, this is why it competes with LBO, venture capital, whatever the case may be. And, you know, with success of the early private equity energy funds, it then became an allocation. So when you walked in to fundraise and call it 2007, you didn't walk in and say, here's energy. You walked in and said, here's Chuck Yates at Kane versus NCAP or whatever. It was a lot of compare and contrast. But the allocation of 10, 12, 13%, whatever it was, was there for energy, and you were talking to an energy person, those days are now gone. You're walking back in, talking to the private capital bucket, and you're going to have to compete with LBO, venture capital, et cetera. And those things are all on fire and are doing really well. So when you ask the question, how much capital is available? It's literally a day-to-day -day relative type uh, scenario in that when Carnelian perhaps may raise later this year or next year or NGP might or whoever goes out and raises, they're truly not going to know until they put the puck on the ice. You used to be able to say, well, we're going to go raise a billion and a half and you kind of knew where your clients were in terms of allocations. That day's all gone and it's literally almost day-to-day, hand-to-hand type combat of competing with every other investment vehicle in the world. Yeah, I would just add, I think, I mean, there's two, two things in terms of dry powder, what, what, what private equity firms have currently to spend and, what, and then in terms of raising, raising their next funds. I, I, think, I think there is dry powder in, in terms of people I'm talking to, the, the firms have, have capital to deploy. Deals are more expensive to do now, ABL financing, in, in, could probably speak to better than I can, but ABL accessibility is significantly less than it was, which makes makes the deals a lot more expensive. But there's equity capital available. Um, I think going forward, when they when it's their turn to raise for the, for them to raise their next fund, then there is the question of, you know, how how readily available are um, is capital relative to the way it used to be? You have different sources that, for ESG purposes, or or just because they've they've soured on, on investing in the EMP space because returns haven't been as good. Those are, those are question marks, I think. But You know, it was interesting. If we would have been having this discussion a year ago, you're right, firms have capital and all that. If you would have had all the private equity firms up here under truth serum and asked them, how much do you truly have at your disposal, they would have said, scared shitless to cash call my limiteds right now because I don't know that they'll send the money. Yeah, we heard a number of you know situations like that, and um, I don't want to get into Carnian's business. Um, I do know that they field a lot more calls 
than they've ever had from LPs and dealing with people that just want out. And um, but they've looked, they've had a lot of success, and I think they've managed it. But I don't think that's unique to them, other people. But to your comment about bank debt, so we did provide some bank debt. Haynes and Boone was on the um, the uh, the represented our lead bank um, on our transaction. And I will say also say that you know, to get you excited to do a deal, you know, you're trying to factor in some equity return for the management and for these private equity teams if you're able to source that capital. But um, it was shocking how few banks were active. And I, I used to have a little bit of a banking background, I know a lot of the bankers. We had 28 banks, 30 banks in our memorial you know, bank facility. So I just, I'd met a lot of these people. You call and do, 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 you know I mean? Nobody's home. And I think we ultimately after, you know, we, I mean, I'm, I kid you not. I mean, you call 25 banks and I think um, we had seven banks say, we're open and we'll talk to you. And then we had um, five banks that were like, we'll open and we'll look at it. And that was a pretty scary number. And I think that is really the, the deal right now is people are scared to have upstream exposure. And it's a real shame. Um, you know, there, there are going to be opportunities that, that these smaller, and I, the small, I don't even know what small is now, but $500 million and less, there's going to be opportunities that need to be fulfilled by people that want to spend their time on that asset. And that's just allocation of resources. And it's what's going to be the best for our industry. And, and, um, and so here you've got a bunch of people that are just so afraid to put dollars to work in that space. And, um, and so look, I think a lot of this is self-curing, right? If you can't find money on deals and the sellers can't find seller, you know, buyers and some of this is gonna work itself out, but um, it's, gonna take, um, it's gonna take a lot more time than we have right now. And I, 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 it's also gonna take people selling assets for returns that aren't historically you know, as good as they were like, and, and because it's not good for the management teams. You do a 2x deal, but you've held this asset for six years, you make nothing. So why do they sell? So I don't want to steal your job as moderator, but I'm actually curious. I, I just put you on the panel. That was my job. I'm done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but five years from now, are all the money center banks out of energy? And let's just leave it to EMP lending. Are they all out of it? Half of them still there or all of them still there? I think there's coming to you next. I, th I think right I think there's going to be. Um, I think that um, the big banks are going to be less active, and I think the large regional bank. Our lead agent is Bank of Oklahoma, and I think banks that size, which I guess are regional banks, but they're forty, fifty, eighty billion dollar banks. What do you want to call it? I think those banks are more active, twice as active as they are now. But money center banks will still have an energy group, just won't be as active. Commercial paper, transactional work, but on the lending side, why expose yourself? You make so little on the lending side, why yeah. expose yourself to the headline risk? I think that's the problem. Yeah, no, I, I, I wish I had a lot more to add, but I totally agree with, with everything you just said. I think, um, I think that the, the, bigger, the bigger commercial banks are clearly getting out of it. And there's just there's just less. less are we going to have a wholesale, no more oil and gas, big press release with AOC sitting there? I mean, I, I think we I think that happens, and I don't think it's just one of them. I think two or three of them. 
wholesale no more oil and gas. I well, mean, I hope not. Chuck, have actually come out. For example, they won't finance deals in Alaska. I think B of A, um, Wells have made, and the European banks right now are out. I don't know if they come back, but this conversation is the same conversation that if NAEP was going on in the late 1980s, early 1990s, the same conversation. The banks have left us. There's no more capital. You know, woe is me. And as Greg said, the cure for low prices is low prices. The cure for no bank financing is no bank financing. There are other banks that are going to come in. And those that have exited will come back. Uh, I was just shocked to, to see that Bank of Montreal has pulled up stakes. They were one of the first foreign banks to come into Houston back in the 1970s. So they have been through a lot of ups and downs. And that they're pulling out is, is somewhat substantial. But at the same token, you see these really small banks. I've seen there's a bank out of New York. They'll make loans up to $5 million. So, you know, you grow and, and, and they'll, in time, they'll be $25 million, $100 million, And they'll, they'll form uh, club deals. Bank of Oklahoma has been an oil and gas lender since early 1900s. So with George Kaiser at the helm, I don't see that bank exiting the, the area. I just think Greg's right. You're going to see more regional banks. And that's how energy lending started. So... I mean, I hope so, you're. I hope you're right. The, I'm just worried with the ESG, and let's call it a tidal wave. I just really worry about it on that front because clearly we as an industry have had a red problem in terms of losing money and the like, but we have a real green problem, and it's 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 not just oh ESG roll your eyes at it. I mean, there are institutions today that are fundamentally saying we will not invest in hydrocarbons anymore. And it just feels realer than it ever has. Well, I think it is true. There are, are groups that had been in, active in the, age, in the area that are exiting it, but uh, nature abhors a vacuum, and you're going to find financing sources. You know, some of our clients are saying, well, I have this guy in China who wants to diversify and, and, and make loans in the U.S. So I, I, I'm not concerned that there'll be no capital, but it's harder to get capital. It'll, it's a cycle. Yeah, and I'm, on the <clears throat> overall presentation to pri private equity, I, I guess I'll give an analogy. You know, 20 years ago, no one really talked about P&A. 10 years ago, you kind of talked about it, factored it in, but stuck it at the end of your reserve report, so it was so discounted that you didn't impact you, you buying a deal. Five years ago, you're actually putting it in your database with, as you would actually do it. And then now it's one of the first things you talk about with private equity guys. High, well-count deals that have shut in, uh, temporarily abandoned, they've got PPQ issues, whatever the I mean, that's a, that's a tough deal to run by private equity right now. And you're seeing Chevron having tons of issues, shallow, old, the age of your well bores, a lot of that stuff matters. But it doesn't mean you can't do those deals or can't make them work. But I just, I will say that the ESG, I, you know, our industry, was late to address it, and then when they addressed it, it was, I don't know, wholeheartedly. Um, now we have real legitimate ESG slides in our deck. You know, some of it is, some of it bothers me because what they, what, what, when I say they, like people in the outside the industry looking in, what they measure is not as important to us, but calculating, quantifying, addressing it in your presentations to go raise that private equity is important now. And that means we measure our, you know, our carbon footprint, and it's real. And you got to be 
really serious about it. everything from your pumpers running long routes in the field all the way to any venting um, or uh, flaring that you've got in the field. All that stuff needs to be taken very seriously and addressed in underwriting because they like to see that now because they get calls from their LPs about it. And so if you're a team that is taking it seriously, managing it, understanding it, and, and the, you're not going to be a team that's got the headline risk. A well comes up. I mean, nobody's doing deals in California, you know, on the private equity side right now. But no one wants to show up in the newspaper, and they don't want to be the you know equity behind someone that is, is getting the wrong kind of attention. So, um, yeah, no, I just say I, I think I mean, private equity at least is is taking it very seriously. They've been taking it seriously. I think um, I mean, it depends on the firm. Obviously, some might be be handling it in a little more sophisticated manner than others, but. Um, but I think I think they don't necessarily they don't all necessarily think of it as, as a negative. I think they look at it as a business opportunity. A lot of a lot of them think a lot of the sponsors think handling ESG in a certain way and, and it can be good for can be good for business. Running running your operations in a in a particular way could be more more sound um, yeah. sound from an economic standpoint. And I think you know one, one just anecdotally um, a, a PE contact of mine told me last week, you know. They, they're trying to do the two most obvious things, um, basically get rid of flaring and, and, and truck, um, eliminate, you know, uh, pipe, pipe as much as, uh, production as they can. Um, and, and previously, they didn't really have conversation. They might have a quarterly discussion about flaring activities. Now, at least this, you know, one pea shop says they, they literally have a board meeting to discuss whether they're going to flare. So I think, I think those are things that are top of mind now. Yeah, I mean, flaring and venting are just wasting a resource. And, um, and a lot of it's just how it's set up and some, some you, know, you know, how you did things and what gas meant to you a long time ago is different. I think ho hopefully with the recent uptick in gas, you know, people can get, you know, make, if it's a commercial decision, obviously it happens. But it, it, the, the question is, is when it's not commercial, are you still going to address it and do it? And I think the answer is, unequivocally, you have to address it and you have to make decisions and even if they're not commercial. We're approaching some of those in, the, in this asset that we just bought. We got a presentation going to Cornelia next week that is going to be um, a commercial negative deal, but we think it's the kind of the right thing to do for the field and um, and so we're going to kind of hit those discussions. It's talking about P&A wells associated in the field. But I think that those are the kind of things that they also want to see and they also want to be a part of and they're willing to accept not everything has to be a profit shop if you're following, you know, a path to overall profitability and taking care of your business properly on the ESG front. So cuz I mean just sort of the final word on it. This is not government regulatory pressure to do this. This is investors. This is consumers. My three children have lived the greatest life of any three humans on the planet. I want to get adopted as one of my kids. If you ask them tomorrow, would you get rid of the oil and gas business? They'd say yes. It truly is a tidal wave um, that's going to hit us, and it's something we've got to be take very seriously. Okay, well, this has been a really positive uh, panel. <laughs> but I think, uh, I think the quote was, don't let a crisis go to waste. And, and this is a huge crisis. There's a lot of opportunities for people that happen to be in the right place at the right time with cash in their back pocket or a commitment to have cash. And so if you're out there 
and you are looking to uh, stick your toe in the water or become an entrepreneur and, and run your own company, don't be discouraged because I think it's when things look the toughest that you really can find some good opportunities. So uh, with that, trying to put a positive spin on things, <clears throat> I'll ask if there are any questions from the audience. I, with the lights on, I have a little trouble seeing. Are there any questions from our esteemed audience? If you're raising your hand, I can't see. Just yeah, yell out. All right. Yeah. I think there's a mic in the center aisle. First off, uh, I want to thank you guys for your expertise and time. It's really beneficial to see that. I had a question about the price of oil. Um, we recently recently seen. I'm an investor in Exxon and Chevron, and uh, my family's been uh, lifelong employees for Exxon and uh, Enron when they were here. But um, we've seen the price of oil go from like $35 a share for companies like Exxon, and it's, it's right at, I think it's like 50-something now. I don't know what it looked like today because of Afghanistan. But um, do you guys think the price of oil is going to remain steady? And also, please tell us your outlook for these oil and energy companies, because uh, we're hearing that investors want a sustained, controlled decline of these industries, right? So if you're investing in these companies, um, what's the outlook for the next few years? So the great bifurcation is happening. We've underinvested in oil drilling in the United States. We're down to, what, about 11 million barrels a day. We're going to continue to fall. I don't think we're ever going to reverse that trend. The Saudis claim to have 3 million in spare capacity. They don't have that. I mean, they went from running 50 rigs a year to 150 rigs. If they truly had that, they wouldn't be running this many rigs. The world is going to be very short oil supply soon. Demand, we, last week we used more gasoline in the United States than any time since COVID. We are addicted to it. It is our crack cocaine. So we are going to see in the next five years, we're going to see $125 oil without anything bad happening, and you know something bad's going to happen. It just is, and all bets will be off on what happens there. The problem, if you're going to try to get that exposure through these oil and gas companies, guess what? They're not oil and gas companies anymore. Exxon is going to be a transition company. That was what the latest board elections were about. You see the court case where uh, Royal Dutch Shell is having to reduce emissions, et cetera. They are all moving away from it. So my advice to you is the oil run we're going to see, play it through the commodity straight and avoid the oil companies because they're going to go spend a whole lot of money on solar and wind and all that, and they're not going to make any money. It's going to be a bubble just like shale was. Well, it looks like we ran out of time, unless you all want to Sorry. volunteer a price. Yeah, I'll, I'll two things real quick. The the mid-cap guys, smaller private equity companies, have been extremely disciplined. There's been very little spending. That's what's causing a lot of the shortage, and I think that trend continues. They're going to remain extremely disciplined. Um, and um, as far as leaving this on a positive note, I love that. Do you say 125? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I love 125. Okay. I just want to make sure. So I'm, all, I'm, all in, I'm all in on that. I don't have a number. I just liked his number. So <laughs> now that we bought something, I want you know, prices to go up, of course. So. Well, headline out of NAEP this year will be 125 oil. 
At what day was that going to occur? Five years. He said within five, five years. years. Come on, Chuck. How about, how about December 31? What do we got there? December 31? Of 2021. Uh, of 2021. Give me this. Let's go December 31 of 2022. So we've got a little bit of outlook. I'll say 97.25. Okay. There you go. This is being recorded so you all can come watch this in two years. All right. I think we are out of time. I appreciate the audience attention and I certainly appreciate each of my, my uh, guest speakers here and my co-host, Chuck Yates. So thank you. Would you all thank the panel for us? Appreciate y'all. Thank you.